You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Noise today is, kids, plug your ears. Noise today is okay. That oh, <laughs> happens. Kids are going to squirm and cry, and that's, that's life. Nobody cares. Um, you, you discipline as you need to, um, but uh, we're, we're happy to embrace that today, having the kids in service. Kids, did you each get one of these fill-ins? Um, this is to help you guys kind of track along and, and uh, pay attention. Anyone need one? I can send one your way. Okay, Ezra, come and grab it. I love it. I, I made a switch, um, I guess, six, eight months ago. And I said, these are no longer the kids' fill-ins. They're just the fill-ins. Miss Karen wants one. Ezra, take one down there. Um, so uh, no shame. Anybody wants one, they're helpful to kind of track with my chaotic thoughts. You might need it this morning more than ever. Who knows? Um, kids, if you fill this in and, uh, and bring it to me after the service, I got candy for you. I want to reward you for paying attention and, and engaging with God's word. Um, parents, you can uh, turn, or kids too, if you have a Bible, turn into James chapter 5. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning as we're working our way through the book of James. We're going to look at verses 1 to 6. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And uh, if you don't have a Bible that... Uh, that you can read easily at home, um, take this one. It's our gift to you. Um, we just bought 40 new ones, and we're excited for the next day. We have to buy 40 more. Um, take it. Use it. Um, we, uh, we invite you to that. As I was growing up um, as a kid, one of our regular holiday trips was to visit um, my mom's side of the family who live in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And uh, it's a great place to go. We've taken our kids there a few times. They love it as well. Um, Lake Geneva is this large, beautiful lake just a couple hours outside of Chicago. And, and as such, uh, it's kind of become like the cottage country of Chicago's elite. And uh, so one of our favorite things to do um, when we visited Lake Geneva was to, to get into my uncle's boat on a warm summer evening. And we would just kind of troll our way uh, around the lake shore. And uh, looking at these grand, sprawling mansions. There are six properties along the lake that are owned by the Wrigley family, like Wrigley Chewing Gum. Um, the Schwinn family uh, from Schwinn Bikes has a fairly decent estate there. Um, friends of my uncle and aunt actually were a, a beautiful Christian couple. He passed away a couple years ago. Uh, Don and Joanne Soderquist. Um, Don was a CEO for 20 years for a small company you might have heard of, uh, Walmart. Um, these are big houses. These are nice places. Uh, but the, the biggest, um, with, with these, these sprawling manicured lawns and, and boat houses down by the water and multiple like caretaker properties, but the biggest, the one, I don't know if it's the biggest, but it's the most impressive, is called Stone Manor. Uh, kids, I should put a picture of it on your uh, fill-in there. My kids, you guys remember Stone Manor? You know which one I'm talking about? All right, it's this massive limestone castle-like mansion. Um, it was built in the 1900s by a guy who uh, invested heavily in real estate right after the Chicago fire. 
Turns out that was a good move. And, uh, and he built this house, um, three huge levels with a rooftop terrace. Uh, I think there's three stories below ground. Uh, the first floor, all of the doorknobs and the light fixtures and the plumbing fixtures um, are all 14 karat gold. The rest of the house is just sterling silver. Um, there is uh, a decadent ballroom complete with a crystal chandelier and a pink marble fireplace. Um, there's a, a hand-carved dining table that seats 100 guests, a library, a music room, kids. It has a gym in the house, and on the, I don't know if it's the second or the third floor, it has a mini golf course. Like, how cool is that? And if that's not enough, the basement um, has, one of the basements has a multiple lane bowling alley, and on the roof, there is a tennis court and a swimming pool. And anybody sign up to live there for a year? Yeah? I, I'm into that. My cousins were filled with legends of Stone Manor the parties that were hosted there, the guests that were there. Um, we love to just sit on the boat and imagine what would it be like to have that kind of money, that kind of life. And I dare say um, we're not alone in that. I mean, how many TV shows now are about the, the houses or the lives of the rich and famous we want to see inside? We're enamored with wealth. We love to think about and dream about what would it be like to be rich. But the Bible doesn't have quite the same reaction, does it? Boy, when Scripture talks about wealth, it is not enamored by the lifestyle of the rich. Typically, as Scripture talks about the wealthy, it is incredibly cautious. It's suspicious. It's warning of the great danger in wealth. That's where we find James this morning. We're rounding the corner into the final book of this, or final chapter of this short book. Um, we'll have a handful of sermons left. We're wrapping up uh, right into Easter. Um, but this is a stark warning against the rich. If you remember, James's purpose in writing this letter has, has been um, helping the church to discern between true and false faith, helping them see what authentic faith looks like. The reality is wherever God is at work, he's, he's building his kingdom, he's growing his church. Satan is also at work. Um, as Jesus taught, uh, sowing tares, planting weeds in among the wheat, mixing goats in among the sheep. And James is giving these tests of authentic faith. What does true saving faith look like on the street? How do we recognize it? And the central difference between those who are truly saved by God's grace and those who have just kind of merely attached themselves to the church, those who are, who are self-deceived in their salvation, the difference is the difference between pride and humility. That's the heart of it. If you remember uh, two weeks ago, I made the argument that, that chapter 4, verse 6 is really the, the beating heart of the book of James. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And James went on in chapter 4 then talking about what does that pride look like? How does it show itself first uh, in the way that we speak to and about one another? Then verses 13 and, uh, to 17, how that pride shows itself in the way that we plan our lives, the way that we boastfully and arrogantly act as if we are in control and we're going to map this out and I'm going to run my life according to my own plan. 
here as he moves into chapter 5, um, he shows how this pride displays itself in the way that we handle money. James addresses the rich. And, and I'm aware over the last few weeks I've said things like, these are some of the harshest words or some of the strongest words by James. Um, this is the point where we see the strongest words from James. This is his sharpest critique. Let me read these verses and then we'll uh, go for a closer look. James chapter 5, starting in verse 1, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Would you join me? Let's pray together. Father, help us as we turn to your word. Lord, these are harsh words. These are cutting words. And maybe some of us need to be cut this morning. Lord, would you be at work by your spirit? Would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Would you help us to see our own lives with clarity and to see your word of truth and be challenged and formed by it? God, would you then show us your mercy? Lord, break us, bring us in humility before your cross that we might find the mercy and grace that you offer. That we would not be found in pride opposed by you, but in humility before the God who gives more grace. Lord, that you would be at work shaping us and forming us by your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to look at this from two sides. First, we need to see uh, the wicked wealthy. What is it that these people are doing? And then we'll look from the other side, what is the way of the righteous? And, and what is the, the proper way to, to handle money and wealth? But first, um, point one, the wicked wealthy. If any of you kids are really sharp, you're going to see my typo. Somehow it became point two. Um, you'll deal with it. Um, it's point one. Verse one, James starts off with the attention getting this, this borderline rude call out that he used back in 4.13. He says, come now, pay attention, listen up, you rich. And he tells the rich they have to weep and howl for the misery that's coming upon them. Like he, just, he just goes right for it. James is picking up on the language of the prophets from the Old Testament they use the same kind of language frequently in the, in the context of judgment. So verse 1 is the language of God's wrath. It's drawing our attention to, to God's wrath. Just one example, um, Isaiah 13.6 says this to Babylon, Wail, 
For the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. He's calling them, wail, cry out, because God's wrath is on the way. James is kind of picking up on that language from the prophets and, and echoing it and then directing it toward the rich. The judgment of God is coming against you. Now we have to stop and ask, uh, against who exactly? That matters. Who, who is he speaking to? Um, is this anyone and everyone with money? And if so, how much money? On a global scale, we're all rich. Our kids are pretty rich on a global scale. Maybe the people you travel with, you're the poorest one of the bunch. Who is this talking to? And is money really the problem? And so one helpful question to ask is, does the Bible teach that all rich are wicked? And the answer is no. No, clearly not. Uh, Again, just one example, the book of Job. Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Listen to this description of Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and many, many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. He was the richest man in the East, spectacularly wealthy, probably lived in something much like Stone Manor, and, and yet he was blameless and upright. It says he feared God and turned away from evil. Wealth is not the problem. One of the most misquoted Bible verses, you know where I'm going, 1 Timothy 6.10. People often say what? They say money is what? The, the root of all evil. And they're wrong. It's totally misquoted, right? Listen to what this verse actually says. Listen closely. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Like There are layers of misunderstanding in the way we abuse that verse. The biggest is this. It's not money that's evil. Money in itself is an inanimate object. Money is, is no more evil than a rock or a piece of toast. It, it just is. The love of money, that's a different story. The love of money uh, is a root, a source of all kinds of different evil things. And so often is the case, uh, as we say, the, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, right? Money is not evil, but how we use money can display evil. You get that? Money is not evil, but how we use money can display evil. If you look at how someone thinks about money, how they use money, what they will do to get money, all of a sudden money becomes a window through which we can see the heart. One of the implications of that then is that you don't actually have to be all that rich to fit this definition of the rich. You don't have to have a whole pile of money for this verse to apply to you. Uh-oh. I thought we were safe. No, it's entirely possible for someone to have very little money and, and fit right into these categories. Have all of these heart attitudes at work within them. 
The wicked wealthy are not defined by how much money they have. Uh, The wicked wealthy are defined by their heart towards money, by their heart. And so there may be many like Job who, who are wealthy and righteous. There may be also some who are actually quite poor, but but in their hearts, those, these, these attitudes toward money show that they, f- they fit this description. So let's, let's look more closely at this description, exactly what James is laying out for us. James gives us four marks of the wicked wealthy. Four marks. The first we see in verses 2 to 3, um, and it is that the wicked hoard money. They hoard it. Kids, do you know what hoarding means? Pulling it in, right? They're piling it up. Um, is, is Scrooge McDuck still a thing? Do any guys, does anyone know who Scrooge McDuck is? Yeah, all right. Some of the parents are, yeah, come on. I can see more parents' hands than kids' hands. But some of the parents have passed it down. Good for you. Um, I don't know what value there is in that, but it feels good. Scrooge McDuck, he's like swimming in his piles of money. He's got this vault just, just heaping and full. He's not going to use it. He doesn't know what to do with all of it. He's just collecting it and keeping it for himself. That's hoarding. It's greedy. Verse 2, James says, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. There are basically three ways that you would store up money in James's day. Um, today, you, you, know, you put your money in the bank. Maybe you invest it in like real estate or the stock market. Or, you know, there, there are different ways that you can kind of build wealth. Well, in James's day, um, you had really three options. Um, your wealth might be stored up in food. You would heap up uh, grain, like the, the parable of the man who, who built those extra barns and filled it up. And, 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 and you would have wealth in your food stores. The second way you could store up wealth was in your clothing. Clothes were expensive. You didn't have a closet full of clothes. Um, You probably had one cloak that you wore. um, And and, and the rich might have finely woven clothes and piles of them. The third uh, was precious metals. Maybe the coins of the day um, or maybe just plain gold and silver. Um, And you wouldn't put that in the bank. You would keep it. Maybe uh, bury it somewhere to keep it safe. Uh, And James is saying to these wicked wealthy, um, your riches have rotted. Well, what kind of riches rot? Food stores. you've, You've gathered up more food than you can even use. You can't even eat it fast enough. It's rotting away out from underneath you, and yet you're hoarding it up. Your garments are moth eaten. If you leave clothes, particularly those made of natural fibers, ignored in a pile, moths will lay their eggs and the larvae will eat, the, eat holes all through those clothes. So Jesus said, if anyone is so well off that they actually have two coats and they see someone without a coat, they should give one of their cloaks to another. These people don't just have like a summer jacket and a winter jacket. Um, They have piles of clothes. So many, they're not even able to use them. The moths are eating them before they can wear them. And finally, James says, your gold and silver have corroded. Now, it's true, um, pure gold, pure silver, they they don't rust. But when mixed with other metals, as their coins often were, um, they would tarnish, they would decay. Um, But I don't think James is even necessarily speaking strictly literally here. I I think he's, he's making the point, you're greedy. 
You're so self-centered. You're ignoring the needs of the people around you so much they, they didn't even care if their food was getting eaten, if their clothes were getting worn, if they could even spend all of the money that they had. They just wanted to keep it and have it for themselves. They hoarded up wealth. Not only did they hoard it up greedily, but, but James then says, it's not even rightfully theirs in the first place. The second mark, um, the wicked steal money. Verse 4 says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. So they're not stealing money by like robbing banks, but they're sneaky about it. And they're defrauding the workers and holding back their money that, that was not rightfully theirs. This is a very typical situation in Israel. Um, those who needed work would go to the town square or maybe to the market. And, and the more wealthy, the, the landowners, um, would go out and hire these men to come and work for the day in their fields. Now, God had laid very clear laws for Israel on how they were to do this, um, specifically with reference to paying the poor. Deuteronomy 24, 14 says this, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for, the poor, for he is poor and he counts on it, lest he cry out against you and the Lord, cry out against you to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. Um, James has this right in the back of his mind, right? He's, he's, he's taking this law, saying, This is what you're doing. You're, you're defrauding, you're withholding the payment to these laborers. They, they need that. They need to go home. You've paid them enough to feed their family for the day. And if you don't pay them today, their, their family doesn't eat tomorrow. But these wicked wealthy are getting rich by holding back that pay, defrauding these poor workers. They hoarded their wealth. They stole their wealth. And then number three says they waste their wealth. Look at verse 5. It says, You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. The first word, luxury, um, isn't necessarily negative. It just speaks of kind of soft living. They're living in comfort. The second word, uh, translated self-indulgent in the ESV, uh, it does have a bit more of a negative spin. Uh, it kind of confirms our suspicion that not only were they living in comfort and opulence, but they were living in a sinful pursuit of pleasure. Their luxury uh, includes lewdness and sensuality. It is an unrestrained pursuit of worldly pleasure. They use their money, not to the glory of God, but to satisfy their own sinful desires at every whim. There's one more mark. They didn't just use this hoarded, stolen wealth to prop themselves up, but they also use it to push others down. The wicked oppress the weak. Look at verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. The word condemned there is a legal term. Uh, it lets us know this is happening in the court system, the legal system. And, and so these rich people are using their influence, they're using their, their status, their wealth, their social power um, to condemn the weak, to have the courts 
rule against them. Possibly even having them executed, having them put to death. It's also possible that murder here uh, is used a little more loosely, um, kind of as it was in chapter 4. Um, this is the natural consequence of what they're doing. Maybe the poor are pleading with the judge about their defrauded wages or maybe about a piece of land that the rich have just kind of taken over. And these rich farmers can easily manipulate the courts, pressure the judges, even bribe them to, to defend their own wicked action and to condemn, to rule against the poor. And in so doing, by, by using the courts to defraud these righteous poor people, keeping his money, taking his land, they essentially sentence them to death. They take away their livelihood. They take away what they needed to live on. Now, we need to just pause here for a moment. Our culture has become so inundated with talk of oppression and social justice. It's this constant conversation. Some days it feels like we're getting beat over the head with it. And we get sick of it. We tend to tune it out. Um, we see the word justice. We see the word oppression. And, and we're tempted to roll our eyes. We see these things wielded as political weapons. And, and we just want nothing to do with that. I get it. And when we see the abuse and the misuse of, of justice, um, when, when social justice warriors are all over YouTube and TV, when, when churches begin to, to set aside the gospel of Jesus Christ, and replace that with so-called justice ministry instead, um, we are rightly offended. And, and we want nothing to do with that. But, but there's a great danger here. Don't forget that the God of the Bible does care deeply about true justice. Right? That, that when the rich... When those who are in positions of, of social power use their riches, use that power to oppress, to hold down, to abuse, to take advantage of the poor and the weak, our Almighty God is outraged. And we ought to be as well. Micah 6.8 used to be a popular verse in the church. Um, I fear these days it makes us uncomfortable. That's a problem. Scripture should not make us uncomfortable. We shouldn't be hesitant. He has told you, O oh man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? And so, yes, we should reject what is called the social gospel. We should stand against wickedness that is done under the cloak of the term justice. But, but let's not forget about true justice. Let's not let the, the misuse of it pull us away from what we should be about. Don't let it distract us from what we're called to as the people of God, a God who is perfectly just and a God who cares deeply about injustice. And it's because God cares about justice, because God cares about the plight of the, the poor and the weak and the helpless that here in the book of James, he, he lays bare the sins of the rich. These are the ones who are doing it. These are the ones who are pushing this injustice in their society. They hoarded and stole for their own luxury and self-indulgence, not caring who they stepped on to get there. And, and God is warning them, this is the path to judgment. This is the path to judgment. The wealthy wicked are not going anywhere good. 
If you remember, that's where James began this passage. Looking at verse 1, he calls them to, to weep and to wail. And he lays out each of these four marks of the wicked. And as he does, if you've noticed, he follows each of them with a serious threat of judgment. Let's look through these verses again and just kind of pick up on these. Um, verse 3. They hoarded their wealth. It's, it's rotted and corroded. And, and, and that corrosion, um, James says, um, will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. He's saying you're... The corrosion of your wealth, the fact that you've hoarded up to the point that it's rusting, is evidence that you're just hoarding. And then he kind of shifts the metaphor um, because their hoarded up wealth was eaten by rust. Their flesh will be eaten by fire. And he's talking about the fire of God's judgment. Like these are sharp words. He's not playing games. This is a serious warning of the fire of hell. Terrifying. Look at verse 4 then. He had accused them of holding back wages from the workers. And then he says that those wages are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So again, he takes this metaphor and kind of runs two directions with it. Again, there's a, there's a witness against you. These defrauded wages are crying out to the Lord, and the cries of the harvesters are heard by the Lord of hosts. Now, he chooses that name for God here very intentionally. Lord of hosts. That's, that's the Hebrew Yahweh Sabaoth. Now, Greek is, or the New Testament is written in Greek. So he's, he's taking from the Old Testament and, and not translating that Hebrew word. He just drops it in there. Um, and so that's why um, I think the King James Version keeps that. It says, the Lord Sabaoth. And we go, what on earth does that mean? Um, one of my favorite hymns, uh, Mighty Fortress is Our God, written by Martin Luther, has that, that line in the second verse, Lord Sabaoth his name from age to age the same. Well, Sabaoth means armies. Armies. ESV translates it hosts. So there's this vast number of soldiers. It's the same thing. This speaks of God's strength. Think about it. These people are used to being in control. They're used to being the ones in power, the ones who are able to manipulate the courts, the ones who are able to pull the strings behind the curtain and push people around. Well, they will find that the evidence is against them in the heavenly court. And the judge is the Lord of hosts. He's the God of vast armies of angels. He's not impressed by you. He's not intimidated by you. He's not, he, he's not going to be moved. He will bring justice. The last statement of judgment then is at the end of verse 5. They have lived in luxury and self-indulgence. And then James says, you have fattened your hearts on a day of slaughter. Does not speak delicately of the wrath of God. They've fattened themselves like a cow is fed rich grain and fattened for the day that it will be killed and eaten. 
These people have fattened their hearts, their souls, prepared themselves for the day of, of the slaughter of God's wrath. This is, a, this is an ugly picture. I think very much the same thing of what Paul is talking about in, in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. When he says, because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Their, their luxury, their self-indulgent living is, is heaping on more and more wrath that awaits them when they stand before God's judgment. This is, this is strong words. Why? Why such a harsh rebuke? Why such a, a, a warning here? Well, if we push back to chapter 4, verse 4. James says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. God created us for this loving, monogamous, husband and wife-like relationship with him. He created us to glorify him and to do so by by finding our meaning and, and purpose and joy in him. As we live a life of of serving him, of worshiping him, of obeying him as as his faithful bride, in a sense. And when we arrogantly go out on our own, refusing to submit to him as God, saying, I'm going to do my own thing, I'm going to call the shots, and I'm going to find my joy not in you, not in obedience and worship to you, but in the things of this world, it's like adultery. We've abandoned him. We've cheated on God with this world. And worse than that, really what we've done is begin to act as though we were God. As if everything ought to serve us instead of him. The wickedly wealthy put themselves in the place of God. They put themselves in the place of God. They were treating Money, they were treating the poor, they were treating the weak, they were treating the court system as if all of those things existed not to serve the Lord, but to serve them. And in that, they become enemies of God. It's not hard to see why. And let's just be reminded again, you don't have to be spectacularly wealthy for this to be true of you. You may, in fact, have very little money, but your heart toward it is stingy and miserly. You protect it and guard it as if the purpose of that money is to serve you and you alone. That impulse of hoarding, the the willingness to bend the truth, to deceive, to defraud in order to to get more money or in order to to save more money. I'm I'm willing to, to sacrifice my integrity for the sake of money. The desire to use money in self-focused, self-indulgent ways. It's all about me. What I can get in this world and my joy here and now. The tendency to use the power that we have. Everyone has people weaker than them around it, around them, right? And we use that power to push others down. Those hard attitudes. Um, yes, wealth kind of puts a magnifying glass on it. Wealth uh, exaggerates those or shows more clearly that they're really there. But that can be true of anyone, and I dare say to some extent they're true of all of us. 
James warns, if those attitudes control you, if you look at your heart and that's what defines you, that's inconsistent. It's incompatible with true saving grace. That's inherently prideful in the way that you live and God opposes the proud. Kids, that one somehow didn't make it into the fill-in. You can write that in. God opposes the proud. If you're living in that kind of pride, claiming to be a follower, God opposes the proud, right? And that way of living, that that wicked wealth is just an expression of pride in our lives. And you can't have pride, a life controlled by pride, and a life controlled by Christ at the same time. That's James's primary warning here. That's what we need to, to take to heart. But I also want to look at this from the other side. And we consider the, the wicked wealthy, how, how they pridefully pursue money and power, um, heaping up God's wrath. We need to stop and ask, what's the way of the righteous? How do we humbly approach money and power? How do we do this right in a way that honors the Lord, that stores up his blessing rather than storing up his wrath? And so this is the way of the righteous. First, The wicked wealthy were hoarding up wealth. They're greedily clinging to every nickel they can get their hands on and even defrauding people to get more. The way of the righteous is the opposite. I want you to turn with me over to 1 Timothy. We're going to use that as kind of a sounding board. It's it's kind of the, the opposite passage from James 5. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 17 to 19. And just listen. Listen to what Paul says here to the rich. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to be what? Prideful, arrogant. Not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Well, do you see the parallels in these passages? In 1 Timothy, Paul gives us, I think, a pretty helpful insight here. Um, Why do we tend toward greed? Why do we feel the need to heap up wealth? What is that? What drives that why do we cling to it well it's a prideful move because our hope is in our money rather than in God we trust 
in the money that we earn with our own hands and the work that I can do. I trust in that, not in God. The wicked trust their money to care for them. But the righteous trust God over money. The righteous trust God over money. We so easily think, as long as I can store up enough, then I'll be safe. Right? As long as I can get a, a good insurance or, or a good uh, um, retirement nest egg built up, then I'm good. Then I'll be safe. Then I'll be cared for. Paul says, no, trust the Lord. Put your hope in Him. Trust God. Uh, and, and, and that trust in the Lord then shows itself in the opposite of hoarding. It shows itself in generosity. The willingness to give money away. Paul in 1 Timothy says, don't store it up. Don't be rich in, in this corroding wealth. Be rich in good deeds. Put it to work. Share it with those in need. The righteous trust God over money. So true faith, authentic faith, shows itself in generosity. Then notice the, the difference in perspectives between these two. James tells that the, the wicked wealthy, at the end of verse 5, he says, you laid up treasure in the last days. Verse 6, he says, you lived in luxury and self-indulgence on this earth. They've, they've hoarded up all these worldly treasures, everything for the, the here and now, not realizing it's pointless. James says, these are the last days. This is... This is the end. This is, this is a fading time. This world is passing away. They're so focused on the here and now, the wealth of this world, storing up for themselves wrath in eternity as they store up wealth in this life. And James says, no, time is short here. You're investing all of your money and your, and your, your effort and your focus in, in a market that's going to disappear. It's going to evaporate. Whereas Paul Looking back at 1 Timothy, verse 19, says that the, the righteous, trusting in God and giving in generosity, is storing up treasure as a good foundation for the future. Looking ahead. The righteous look to eternity over the world. They look to eternity over the world. The wicked wealthy have their, their luxury, their self-indulgence here. They, they store up wrath for the days to come, but the righteous are willing to be poor. They're, they're willing to live simply in this life, even sacrificially in generosity, storing up treasure for eternity. This is a, a basic kind of foundational mindset difference that will show itself in all kinds of different ways between the true believer and the unbeliever. Because the unbeliever needs to get it all now, right? Like we only live once. Live life to the fullest. Make the most of every day. Carpe diem. That's what we need. Right? I need, to, I need to maximize my pleasure here and now because this is it. But the believer is looking at eternity. The, the believer doesn't even see what's down here at his feet. He's, he's looking at the horizon. He's looking a thousand miles down the road. Who cares if this short life on this broken world is lived in simplicity? Even sacrifice and suffering, if that means eternity is filled with grand reward. There's a tragic irony here. These people, and so many people that we see around us, and we feel this even in our own hearts, 
spend themselves running after the things of this world, clamoring to find joy in every worldly thing, trying to make the most of this life, trying to serve themselves in in finding joy and fulfillment. And Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Their self-indulgent search for pleasure is the very thing that denies them of the joy and satisfaction that they seek. They've actually sacrificed their own true happiness trying to find it. Back to 1 Timothy, Paul says that the, the generous righteous do it. Look at this, the end of 19. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. They hold this life so loosely. They're looking at eternal life. That's what I'm living for. That's what I'm about. Listen to Jesus in in Luke chapter 12, starting verse 29. He says, Do not seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink. Don't be worried. For all of the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. He's saying what? Don't, Don't trust in your wealth. Don't trust in the works of your own hands. Trust the Lord. Instead, seek His kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. I love this. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide for yourselves money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. This worldly wealth is worse than just insecure. Um, It's just temporary. It will not last. It will fail. You need to set your eyes on the future. You need to trust in the Lord, generously giving to those in need, giving in ways that advance the kingdom of God. Focusing on eternity. Jesus says even going so far as selling the things that you have to to give to those in need because because it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Why would we be so worried about this fading, passing, broken world when our Father in heaven intends to give us His glorious, eternal kingdom? And He delights to do it. In the words of C.S. Lewis, um, we are far too easily pleased. We settle for so little. Don't get caught up in the short game. The righteous trust God rather than money. The righteous look to eternity rather than to this world. And while the wicked wealthy are on the path to judgment, the righteous are on the path to joy, true, lasting joy. One last thing I want us to see, the righteous choose peace over power. James talks about how the wicked wield their power, their wealth, their influence, corrupting the courts, oppressing and and taking advantage of the poor, even to the point of their death. And then look at that last sentence in verse 6. I think this is just absolutely shocking if we really grasp it. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Trusting in the Lord, knowing that The wealth of the wicked would be a witness against them, knowing that the Lord of hosts has heard their cry of injustice, looking not to this life with their eyes set on eternity. The righteous doesn't fight back. He doesn't fight for his rights. 
He doesn't rage and argue against those who are treating him unjustly. He chooses the way of peace. Trusting the Lord, he doesn't even resist. Let's just be honest. That's awkward. That makes us uncomfortable again. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around. We are so caught up in what are my rights? And I will stand and you can't mistreat me. Romans 12, 14 touches on this. Blessed are you when people persecute you. Sorry, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Jesus drills down a little further. Matthew 5, 38. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Yeah, we have. That's what we say. He did this to me. I do that to him. I deserve justice. I need to be treated fairly. But I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you in the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Man, dare I say Jesus would not have made a good American? I'm American, I can say it. He's not worried about his rights. He's not worried about fighting back. He takes it peacefully. And Jesus didn't only teach this, did he? He lived it. He walked this out. 1 Peter 2, 21, 23 puts it this way. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, listen, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Oh, those are not fun steps to follow. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him. That's God who judges justly. That's the way of the righteous. Following in the suffering footsteps of Jesus. And as we look at this passage in James, I don't know, honestly, if he intended this or not. Um, It could well be read, you have condemned and murdered the righteous one, and he does not resist you. This could be a reference to Jesus, but it's not clear. But certainly, whether James is thinking that overtly, or it's just in the back of his mind, or just the Holy Spirit weaving this together, Jesus is the ultimate righteous one who did not resist those who condemned him and ultimately murdered him. That's the way of the Lord, to trust the Lord, to choose patience and peace in the face of injustice. He was wrongfully arrested, denied justice in a kangaroo court, condemned wrongfully, beaten, spit on, mocked, whipped, punched in the face, and then then led eventually to his brutal execution. And all the while, just as Isaiah 53 had prophesied, Of him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Why? Because he was weak? Because he was afraid? Because he didn't care about justice? No. No, Peter tells us why. Because he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He trusted God. 
He set his eyes on eternity. He was willing uh, to be taken advantage of, to have his rights here on this earth stripped away with his eyes set on that eternal goal. He faced suffering and hardship and sacrifice in this world with humility, with peace. And where is he now? Sitting in heaven at the right hand of the Father, honored and exalted. Philippians tells us because he he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself to be born as a man. Humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Which path are you on? The path marked by pride, The path that shows itself in in greedy hoarding and self-sufficiency and self-protection wasted on self-indulgence, focused on on power and, and influence in a world that's perishing. Or the path of humility, the path that trusts the Lord, that trusts God over money, that looks to eternity over this world, that faces suffering and sacrifice and injustice with peace. Entrusting yourselves to the the one who judges justly, the Lord of hosts, who hears our cry. Invite Josh and the worship team to come back up. Um, We're going to close this morning with communion. Looking again to Christ. Setting our eyes on him. We we look to him as this, this perfect example that we are to follow after. The sacrificial generosity that he showed. The the suffering with peace by faith in the Lord. We also look to him as as confirmation of our hope, right? He's the evidence. He's the the rock-solid evidence that there is a resurrection, that there is a life after this, that, that God rewards those who trust him faithfully, that the suffering of this life will be rewarded. But above all, we look to him as our redeemer, as the one who died in our place. And we come seeing glimmers of each of these things in our own hearts as those who are sinful and broken. And we come to the one who calls us as faulty, wicked sinners to come in humility, to come and find mercy and grace. He is the God who gives more grace, abundant grace. He opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble.